Welcome to the Why We Argue podcast. I'm Robert Talese, your host. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Why We Argue is produced by Humility and Conviction in Public Life, a project based at the University of Connecticut, which explores how to balance our deepest commitments with open-mindedness, a respect for reason, and intellectual humility. The series, which is made possible by generous funding from the John Templeton Foundation, features brief discussions with publicly-minded thinkers about the state of civil discourse in contemporary democracy. Now today, my guest is Stephen Call. Stephen is a senior research associate and the director of the Program for Public Consultation at the School of Public Policy at the University of Maryland. Stephen is also the founder and director of the nonpartisan organization Voice of the People, which is working to create structures and institutions that will enrich the channels of communication between Congress and citizens. Stephen is a political psychologist who studies a range of phenomena, from public political ignorance and popular attitudes about climate change, to congressional decision-making processes and international attitudes towards religion. Hello, Stephen. Hi there. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. well. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for joining me on Why We Argue. Now, I wanted to talk to you today about some of your recent work on polarization and other topics. Um, so maybe the place to start is um, with the following observation. Now, we commonly hear uh, politicians and pundits uh, lament the polarization that prevails in U.S. politics. Uh, it's common to hear people say that the public is polarized, that the politicians are polarized, that Congress is polarized. But there are different ways of understanding what polarization is. And so, uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, there's a dispute about whether the American electorate is indeed polarized. Uh, now, you have a view uh, uh, on this. Um, maybe we could start there. Um, do you think that citizens are polarized on political topics? When you ask the question, what should be done, what government should do, there's remarkably little polarization in the American public. There's a tremendous amount of common ground. However, the political discourse has become very dominated, not so much by the issues of what should be done, but by the affiliations, by partisan affiliations. And uh, the parties have become considerably more polarized. And I attribute that to the increasing role of special interests, that special interests have, uh, through campaign donations, exerted stronger controls over the parties and over elected officials. And that has made them more rigid in their policy posture, so it makes it much hard for the, harder for them to negotiate and find common ground. So they, are, they, are, they see themselves as basically hired to take a position and to hold to that position, to not compromise, not negotiate, and so on. And and, and then it becomes ultimately a power struggle between these uh, parties rather than a problem-solving process for uh, uh, developing policy. And the public stands on the side there and finds a very frustrating uh, process to observe. They find this very annoying. Now, they do affiliate with one party or the other, and over time, they have become more sorted so that they actually, you know, Republicans are more consistently conservative, Democrats are more consistently liberal. Uh, but the majority of people are not highly ideological. So when they focus on policy questions, in fact, they find a tremendous amount of common ground. 
that I, I take it will be surprising to a lot of listeners that there is this common ground. And you know, I know some of your uh, some of your recent work that has found. Um, in some cases, really encouraging uh, sites of uh, of agreement about taxes and climate change and 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 these sorts of things. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the um, uh, perhaps uh, to many of our listeners unexpected places where uh, the the citizens are less divided than we usually think? Well, let me just say that first that o- overall um, on the question of where whether Congress is representing the people in their in, the, in their polarized responses, we did a very interesting study where we uh, took over uh, almost four hundred poll questions on a whole variety of topics on what the government should do, and we divided them according to the, whether they lived in red districts or blue districts and if con- congressional polarization was reflected by the people, you would expect to see a lot of differences between the red districts and the blue districts. Uh, but in fact, the number of times that the that the majority in the red district or in the blue districts went in opposite directions on a question was just four percent of the time, wow. and two thirds of the time there was no dif- uh, no statistical difference at all. Um, now there are some areas where the, there are there is a kind of intensity, uh, especially issues related to sexuality, abortion, and so on. Um, but on a wide variety of topics, there are uh, there's 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 a, a, a lot of common ground. Uh, whether it's uh, um, and and the more information that people have, the more common ground they find. Now, I should m- mention that what I just said about red districts and blue districts—that's not exactly Republicans and Democrats. It's right. the people that they represent in very red and very blue districts. If you look at Republicans and Democrats per se, you do find uh, it was about about a quarter of the time they were were at odds. However. When you take people through a process where they deliberate on both sides of the issue, they hear pros and cons and so on, they actually end up uh, uh, finding substantial uh, amount of common ground. Um, and that's, uh, uh, you know, whether it's how do you how should we deal with Social Security? Uh, we, we took people through a process where they evaluated uh, options for dealing with the Social Security shortfall. As an example, and uh, more than seventy percent of Republicans and Democrats agreed on steps to eliminate most of the Social Security shortfall. Uh, we found common ground about what to do about the environment. There can be arguments about climate change, this or that, but when it comes comes down to um, the question of you know uh, reducing carbon dioxide or reducing methane or something like that or greater efficiency in in in, in the use of energy or making uh, raising the the the, the uh, standards for uh, uh, gas consumption in cars, you you find large majority bipartisan majorities uh, endorsing these these kinds of steps. Um, so, or also, for example, when it comes to government reform, campaign finance reform, uh, increasing disclosures by by uh, donors, uh, um, greater restrictions on lobbying, and so on, tremendous uh, bipartisan consensus. Uh, and these are just uh, some some other examples. Um, even when it comes to uh, uh, taxes and uh, um, spending, there's there's a remarkable similarity. Now, if you present an issue and you label it, you know, here's the Republican position, here's the Democratic position, you'll see more uh, polarization. And why is that? Well, because people, these questions are, are challenging for people and they're often ambivalent. And so if they hear 
okay, here is the here is the my tribe came down on this side, and then it's they they do what we call satisficing. Mm-hmm. They go, okay, this is hard to figure out. I, I I see the merit on both sides, but okay, there's the team, my team. They they chose that. Okay, I'll I'll, I'll go along with that. And evidence says that you can actually even flip the positions, and people will still be driven by their by, by the partisan affiliation. Wow. We find that when people go through a process, when they evaluate the arguments pro and con on issues, in most cases, majorities find both the pro and the con convincing. Most people are ambivalent. Most people go, yeah, you know, I, I see that point. Oh, yeah, I see the other side too. And they feel some tension. And so the partisan affiliation reduces that tension and kind of gives them a way out of it. But if you ask them to stay with it and come to their actual conclusion, they, they come to conclusions that are really remarkably similar. Well, that's interesting. So I guess now the next natural question is, so it seems that Congress, that politicians maybe more broadly are polarized uh, in that they don't, as you were saying, they don't give an inch. <laughs> they don't want to compromise. Uh, so, And I think they find that frustrating. And I think that they, they, they perceive that the, 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 the campaign donors and often acting through the, the uh, party leadership uh, directs them to toe the line. And a lot of them feel frustrated by this, that they have to toe this line and that they can't reach across and, 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 and find this common ground. And one of the ideas that we have is that, at Voice of the People, is that if we can give the public a greater voice, that the public can kind of take the lead because Republicans and Democrats do find common ground and, and that might help give cover for, for uh, members of Congress to, to, to reach across the aisle. So would you say then that that the polarization in Congress is really the product of kind of um, party strategizing rather than any ideological divide? Well, I think the roots of it are more in the interests that that, that make the campaign donations and that those interests are are in fact polarized. And then that that uh, and then that creates a a party structure, a party um, platform. um, And then that gets imbued with ideology. Um, and uh, but it, it, ideology's been around for a long time. The <laughs> amount of mo- but, but the amount of money flowing into politics has increased dramatically. Uh, the number of uh, lobbyists has increased dramatically. Though what I call the industry influence and the influence industries are, uh, has has grown tremendously, and and it has basically come in and and, and mobilized the, uh, the ideology and support of of you know specific policy positions that serve those interests, uh, and then it just makes it hard to to negotiate and and to try to find. Uh, you know, the aspiration isn't to find the right balance. The aspiration isn't to to say, okay, let's set our, set some priorities and mitigate the the effects for for secondary considerations and things like that. The, the kinds of things one normally does in in negotiations, uh, it just becomes, you know, I will win over the other side, and if I can't do it now, I'll get get I'll mobilize even more forces and resources and next time you know we'll we'll vote them out and then we'll ultimately prevail and that you know so we, we see these swings back and forth and after with with every new administration in the next you know two, two years later the other party sweeps in and it just becomes this this uh, um, in, inability to to, uh, to to find equilibrium it's just it becomes a power struggle right 
So it looks then that there's sort of two prongs to the problem, and they're they're certainly connected. One is the um, the amount of money and influence that of, of the kind that money buys that's been fed into the political system, and the other, relatedly, is uh, the muting of the voice of the people. So maybe we should talk uh, a little bit about some of the work on that you've been doing on citizen cabinets and what you call policymaking simulations. Can you tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about the voice of the people work? Right. Well, the goal of the process that we take people through is to put people in the shoes of a policymaker. The, the public feels that, that uh, the public should have significantly more influence in over um, policymaking decisions. They really feel that there has been a violation of a kind of social contract between the people and policymakers. And over the last decades, there's just been this growing perception that they're not being heard. So our goal is to help them get heard. But policymakers say reasonably, well, how can we listen to the public? They're so misinformed on on many issues. In fact, they are misinformed on many issues. Uh, They also will sometimes say, yeah, but they haven't, policymakers will say, they haven't heard my killer argument. And if they heard this argument, I'm sure they would agree with me. So we take them through the process where we first give them a briefing on the issues, and then we present them options being considered in Congress, and then we have them evaluate arguments pro and con on the issues. Now, the briefing and the pro and con arguments are all vetted with uh, key uh, um, experts on both sides of the aisle to make sure that, in fact, yeah, this is a a, a fair, accurate uh, presentation of the issues and the strongest arguments are being heard on both sides. And then ultimately, they make their recommendations. Sometimes in making um, them, they have to deal with trade-offs. Uh, for example, we had them go through a process of dealing with a social security shortfall. Um, and as they went along uh, and they made their final decisions, um, they were told how much of the, the social security shortfall this uh, this step would take. We also had them consider pos- uh, the possibility of increasing benefits, and they saw the impact that that would have on the shortfall. So as they went along and made their recommendations, a little bubble would follow them around and tell them how they're doing relative to the shortfall. And in fact, people, as I said earlier, did did fairly well, and, and uh, the, the a large bipartisan majorities uh, uh, reduced the uh, the shortfall um, by two thirds, and and majorities reduced them uh, in the entirely. So the public really is capable of of dealing with these issues. Um, and standard polls are not always adequate. Uh, for example, you can ask in a standard poll, "Do you want to reduce uh, 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 the deficit?" Um, yeah, yeah, sure. That that sounds good. Uh, Separate question. Do you want to raise taxes? Do I want to raise taxes? Uh, no, no, rather not. Uh, uh, do you want to s- reduce spending on education or you know, defense or social security? Well, would rather not. Oh, you see, the public's just a big baby. They can't understand money in, money out. Right. But it's because in each case you're asking, what do you want? And this is rooted in political polling. Like, well, if if a, if, a, if somebody if a candidate took this position, would you feel better about the candidate? Right. So the the public is just sort of this emotional response, right, rather than a deliberating. 
cognitive, <laughs> cognitively capable uh, decision maker. So when we give them the tools, it turns out they deal with it just fine, and they do reduce the deficit substantially when given those options. They do deal with the, the Social Security shortfall. They do deal with the, the Medicare shortfall and so on. So we, we, we really have demonstrated that they can and deal with these issues. They also have, um, if you ask people, for example, we did one recently on uh, net neutrality. Uh, and uh, if you ask people how they feel about net neutrality, they, you know, huge numbers say, I don't, I don't know. I don't know enough about it. Or you can ask them a question like, do you think the, 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 the Internet should be regulated? And people go, well, maybe not, you know, and they can, but they don't really know what it means. So we explain it to them in, in um, you know, just a few paragraphs and they hear pro and con arguments. And they came out with a very clear 83 percent said, oh, no, they're opposed to repealing net neutrality, including 75 percent of Republicans. Um, so they do or, or we can take a problem like what do you do about the postal service and we take them through that process and they come up with a whole clear set of re recommendations. So you can really extend the capacity of, of, of the public into more detailed areas of policymaking that uh, standard polling can't get into. Well, that's interesting and, and again, encouraging. So um, is the issue then the lack of informedness or is it, well, I guess it's going to have to be both, right? That the way that policymakers, uh, congressmen and senators get their understanding of what their constituents think is by um, polling devices that are bound to produce incoherent conceptions of what people think. Well, when we're dealing with particular members of Congress, they actually do a limited amount of polling, and they do it mostly around election time. And it's really they're really not trying to determine what's the majority view among their constituents as much as they're trying to look for messages that they will can, uh, drive wedges between different groups or access a particular uh, demographic they're trying that they think they can uh, move the, the the needle on. It's it's not about you know hearing the voice of the of the people overall uh, for that they tend to rely more on you know letters and calls and then and the, often with very non-representative samples of their of their constituents so they do not really have a very good system and we did a fair amount of research uh, asking uh, uh, people in congressional offices to to say what uh, uh, the majority views of their constituents were on issues and then tested them and and it was remarkable how poor their understanding was of their of their constituent views and it wasn't that they they assumed always that that they that their constituents agree with them. Sometimes they said, oh, you know, I know this is a really important thing to do, but I know my constituents will never support it. And in fact, that didn't actually turn out to be the case. So it's, uh, you know, you can sometimes take national surveys, but then members will say, well, I'm sure my constituents are different, right? So the idea that we're developing is to have citizen cabinets in each district and state um, so that they get a, they hear from a representative sample of their, of, of their constituents. Um, in most cases, the differences are not that great, uh, whether you're looking at very red districts or very blue districts, or you're looking at Oklahoma versus Maryland and so on. Um, but on some issues, you do get uh, significant Significant differences, so you, you never know for sure. It is, so it really is necessary to to hear hear directly, and and for members to take a tough position where they stand up to the special interests that are pushing them, or they stand up to the party leadership. 
it uh, they really do need to, to to hear from their their constituents themselves. Right, right. So you know, um, you know, I became first aware of your work way back when with the Iraq War and and Bush and Kerry. And you had been part of a study that linked um, levels of political misinformation to media and news platforms mm-hmm. uh, that you found roughly that, you know, there, there was a, 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 a correlation between uh, a le- the level of misinformedness and, you know, where you where you were primarily getting your news from. No. Uh, and I understand that some of those links uh, still persist, or at least that there's evidence to think that there are these, these correlations. Can you tell us a little bit about about that work? Yeah, well, what we did was we were looking at uh, um, levels of misinformation about the Iraq War, and we looked at three uh, misperceptions that uh, the the U.S. had found weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, that the U.S. had found evidence of a link between Saddam Hussein and al-Qaeda, and that uh, world public opinion approved of the U.S. going to war with Iraq, and um, uh, all of which were, of course, uh, demonstrably uh, incorrect. Um, We then uh, uh, looked at how widespread these perceptions were and then where people were getting their, 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 what were their primary sources of news, and found that that there was the very high correlation between these uh, misperceptions and uh, news sources. Uh, overall, about 50% had one of these three uh, misperceptions. Um, but in, in, for you know NPR listeners, and uh, uh, it was down in the 20s. CNN, it was in the 50s. For Fox News, it was up at about 80% uh, percent had uh, one of these uh, three misperceptions. So, uh, and we did this uh, at, at a later time with some others and found um, other uh, correlations as well. I'm not saying that these are the only ones. We also found some where PBS uh, and NPR viewers had uh, were had more misinformation than Fox viewers. So it's not that it's all in, in, in one direction, but... Uh, uh, people were uh, clearly get their information in 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 ways that um, get organized around certain um, expectations, um, uh, themes, and uh, narratives, and and uh, and those those are, can can become so strong that uh, um, they get they get uh, they end up with with misinformation. It's it's not generally that these outlets directly um, put out. Uh, misinformation, uh, but if, for example, Fox would say, you know, meanwhile, in the uh, turning now to the war on terrorism in Iraq today, uh, this happened, right? And and that creates a direct expectation that that communicates, oh, um, we are in Iraq as a result of 9/11, 9/11, Al Qaeda, and so on. So then, when you ask them. Uh, was uh, um, was Saddam Hussein connected to Al Qaeda? They go, oh, well, yeah, it's well, that, that's why we went in there. It's related to the war on terrorism. You don't actually have to say a false, make a false statement. Now, sometimes false statements are actually made, but I don't think that's the primary way that it happens. And do you think that you know that 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 part of this phenomenon is is sort of at least structurally similar to what we what we were talking about a moment ago with Congress that. Um, that particularly, I guess, cable news networks, you know, are trying to attract uh, a certain audience, a certain demographic, so that they can deliver uh, a certain audience to uh, advertisers. And so there is a kind of like party, you know, a kind of um, party influence, we might say, on um, on the networks, so that even in these indirect ways, 
uh, misinformation is spread by way of the way you know the way news is is presented. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it, there's. I think there's an attraction to narratives that are simple. Uh, the you know that don't require the people see you know both sides of the issue, the kind of thing that can make people you know pound their fists and shout and and with with the, with a certain sim- simple certainty uh, that 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 they have been wronged or the other side is 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 mistaken or that that, that there is some strategy that is so unambiguously superior and things like that and that that's a, that's that's comforting uh, uh in, in certain ways i i think to some extent people don't really believe it they just kind of find it entertaining um but uh uh in in the end uh, it does it have an effect on 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 the way they think um and in and in, in the way they answer questions but we do find that it's not that they're really that rigidified because when we give them the arguments that when we when we put them in a situation where they're hearing both sides like we do in these policy making simulations they actually do respond to both sides they do find both sides at least somewhat convincing and 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 then when they go again into the problem solving mode they're not as 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 polarized as the the television stations that they might <laughs> watch would suggest. Well, Stephen, you've been very generous with your time. Let me just ask one one last question before we uh, break it off. Um, do you have any advice that you would offer to um, a citizen? I mean, you're, you're in, engaged in, in these very exciting initiatives to you know open the channels of communication between uh, policymakers and citizens and to help uh, provide uh, policymakers with uh, access to representative samples of their constituents and such. Mm-hmm. But for the citizen who um, might be listening, who's just wondering, well, I don't know, should I stop watching televised news? Should I start reading newspapers? What, what exactly, what, what would you say somebody should be doing now to help dispel uh, what uh, what sounds uh, like a sort of kind of um, uh, a myth that we're we are a deeply divided citizenry over um, you know par- across party lines uh, of red and blue. Yeah, well, I would um, a few things. One is I would encourage people to change the channel at least occasionally, um, and to flip around and hear the different uh, perspectives. Uh, you know, stretch your brain a bit. You know, it's like doing exercises, right. <laughs> um, and and hear things from different perspectives. Talk to people who are not necessarily the, the same as you. You know, seek out that opportunity to to hear uh, to hear other perspectives and expand your mind in in that way. Learn learn uh, empathy uh, for for other points of view. And remember that people are underneath, you know, even when they're really assertive and fist pounding and so on, underneath they, they probably have some ambivalence and, and, and are aware that things are really not quite that simple. Uh, on a more concrete way, I would also suggest that you uh, seek to get informed on, on issues and, hear, and again, hear both sides. We have a, a method for doing that. I mentioned the policymaking simulations that we take representative samples through. We put these policymaking simulations online, uh, and you can go to Voice of the People. Uh, it's vop.org and go to the policymaking simulations, and you can go through the process yourself so that you get informed on the issues, evaluate the arguments, and ultimately make your recommendations. And you can then enter your address, and your, the, the, your, the names of your members of Congress will pop up, and you can send your recommendations on to your members of Congress. Well, that's fabulous. Um, so, vop.org. 
Correct. Well, Stephen, it's been wonderful to talk to you. Uh, thanks so much for your time today. And thank you, listener, for tuning into the Why We Argue podcast, which I remind you is produced by the University of Connecticut's Humility and Conviction in Public Life Project with generous support from the John Templeton Foundation. You can follow the project on Twitter and on Facebook at Public Humility. That's uh, one word, uh, at Public Humility. Uh, have a good day and bye for now. <laughs>